0: Happy Valentine's Day. Uh, today I'm going to talk about love and suffering um, and football, uh, but mostly suffering. Uh, so let's start with football. How about them Bucks, right? Awesome game last weekend. I hope you got to see the Super Bowl uh, for the incredible spectacle of a relatively normal looking sports event. Uh, and of course, to watch history in the making in the person of Tom Brady, the quarterback for the Tampa Bay Buccaneers, a legend in his own lifetime. So Brady now holds 13 Super Bowl records, including the most wins, seven, most appearances, 10, most completions, 277, most passing yards, 3,039, and he's the oldest quarterback ever to win a Super Bowl And they counted 43 years, 188 days. They really do keep track of these things, (laughs) don't they? Um, So this morning, we're very happy for our friend Gio, who I hope is on the Zoom call today and not still out partying, because Gio was born and raised in Tampa and he's a lifelong Bucks fan. He's been waiting and waiting and Sunday was such a great day for him. It's been a long road, huh, Gio? 18 years of waiting. But I want to make this sermon introduction relevant by asking this question. To what degree is Gio himself a champion? I don't mean any disrespect to Gio, he's a hero in lots of other ways. But when it comes to football, Gio didn't win the Super Bowl, right? Tom Brady won the Super Bowl. And Gio shares in the glory because he's a dedicated Tampa Bay fan. But how much does he really share in it? and in what ways? And are those the same sorts of ways that we as Christians share in the glory of Christ? I think that the two situations are not entirely dissimilar. So we are given glory and victory over sin when we really didn't do anything. We've been following Paul step-by-step through the Gospel in the Book of Romans, and we've realized by now that we do nothing to save ourselves. It all comes straight from heaven by God's grace. We have a champion who has won the game on our behalf. It's a bit like when David stepped out alone against Goliath and beat the whole Philistine army by defeating this one champion. Jesus stepped out alone against sin and Satan, and he alone lived a sinless life, and he alone defeated sin on the cross on behalf of the whole human team. And all that we did was watch right and celebrate a bit like Geo celebrating Tom Brady but then there's this really interesting verse here in Romans 8 verse 37 Paul says that we are more than conquerors we are more than conquerors so I want this to think about it this morning when Paul says that does he mean anything more than we mean when we say that Tampa just won the Super Bowl Are we really only conquerors by association, or is there more to it than that? And I really think that Paul does mean more than merely conquerors by association. I think he also means that we are conquerors in a much more personal way for two reasons that he's talked about in Romans. First, because of union with Christ, and here second, because of our own suffering. So we explored the first reason, union with Christ, back in Romans chapter six, where Paul said that baptism has united us with Christ in a death like his. So our story has been overlaid with his story, and that actually makes his victory our victory. And that's a lot more of an intimate association than even tamper with its beloved football team. But today we're we're gonna talk about the second reason that we ourselves are conquerors, and that is because of our own suffering. So please open your Bibles now to Romans chapter eight. And I have three points to draw from Paul in the second half of Romans eight, talking about suffering. First, that our suffering matters in the world. Second, that our suffering matters in our own lives. And third, that we will be personally victorious over our suffering. And the conclusion of all of this uh, is that we ourselves are more than conquerors. So first, our suffering matters in the world. Paul brings up the subject of suffering right here in the middle of Romans 8, really in the middle of his victory lap of Romans, He brings up suffering while he's talking about what the gospel means for glory. So it's there in verse 17, Paul says that we are heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. Right? Kind of a surprise entrance of suffering into this chapter in verse 17. Paul hasn't talked about suffering for a long time in Romans, and it comes in here, and then it changes the course of the whole chapter. The whole rest of the chapter is mostly about this subject of suffering. So notice from verse 17 that our main participation in the life of Jesus is through our suffering. We remember that Jesus himself was a man of sorrows, and he won his victory through the agony of the cross. And so we cannot know him unless we suffer like him. Well, you say, that's easy enough, everybody suffers. And yes, they do. But another thing that becomes clear in Romans 8 is that the suffering of the children of God is different from normal human suffering. It has been transformed through the cross of Jesus. So our suffering ceases to be about our own punishment, and it becomes a purposeful participation in the work of God in the world just as it was for Jesus. So let's see this. Look back at Romans 8 verse one. We saw in verse one that there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And that means that there is no longer any price for us to pay for sin. That price has been fully paid by Jesus on the cross. So before we knew Jesus, when we suffered, it was just. We were getting a foretaste of what our sins deserved, and we were getting a warning of God's judgment that was coming. But now that we have been baptized into Jesus, our present suffering is no longer about our own sin, because all of that sin has been forgiven and dealt with on the cross, but yet we still suffer. So now, instead, our suffering has a different purpose, and now our suffering is connected, as verse 17 says, with our own glory. So you could say that suffering is our ticket out of the stands and into the game. It makes us active players in the salvation plan of God with a trophy of glory to be won at the end. And Paul says there's a correspondence between the suffering and the glory, but he's also quick to say that they are not alike in scale because verse 18, I consider, that's like an accounting term, like by my calculations, Uh, Paul says, I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. So the suffering and the glory are connected. The suffering comes now and the glory comes later. But if you took out your set of balancing scales to compare the two, on one side you've got a feather and on the other side you've got the moon. Uh, and you put them side by side and it's not even a comparison that anybody would dream of making so this glory that's coming to us that is really good news and it's not just good news for us but for the whole creation because paul goes on in verse 19 for the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of god so the whole creation groans as it waits to receive what we ourselves have already received, verse 21, to obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. The creation, Paul says, groans in pain like a woman in labor. And he also says that we ourselves groan, for although we already have the first fruits of the Holy Spirit, verse 23, we still wait eagerly for our adoption as sons and the redemption of our weary bodies. So do you see that our suffering, our groaning now, is in harmony with creation. Once upon a time, we were the enemies of creation. We had sinned it into its state of futility in the first place, but now we've become creation's friends. We feel its pain, and we groan along with it, and we are creation's hope. For our freedom will also mean its freedom, and our perseverance through suffering will be creation's salvation. Do you see that in the text? All right, so that's the first conclusion, that our suffering matters in the world, in the created world. And the second thing is that our suffering matters in our own lives. So as we go on to verse 26, we find that the Holy Spirit of God within us is also groaning. So creation groans, we groan, and the Holy Spirit groans as he prays for us, Paul says, with groanings too deep for words. And this is obviously not because the Holy Spirit is in pain, Uh, it's instead because he shares with us the experience of our pain. And he's praying to the Father that the pain would do its proper work in us, whatever that is. So we are weak and we don't know how to pray as we ought. Specifically, we rarely know what is the right thing to do with our pain. Should I hide it? Should I acknowledge it? Should I pray for this pain to end? or should I pray for the strength to bear up under it? Which is the more faithful way to pray? And so often we just don't know. That's what Paul means. The Spirit helps us in our weakness. The mechanisms of suffering are mysterious to us. So the Holy Spirit intercedes to the Father on our behalf because he knows exactly what the purpose is behind the pain. And so he prays for that purpose to be fully accomplished. And in the midst of all that mystery of what we don't know, Paul now brings us back to what we do know in verse 28, what we can be sure about. He says, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. Maybe you've heard that verse before. Um, It's a very famous verse. Christians quote it quite a lot, especially when another Christian is suffering and they're trying to be helpful. Um, But unfortunately, they use it wrongly quite a lot of the time, because as you look at this verse, Paul does not mean that your suffering is no big deal, right? It is a big deal, and the Holy Spirit is groaning in pain because of it. Um, Paul doesn't tell Christians to cheer up, dry your tears, and just be grateful that God is doing this horrible thing for your good, because there is still real pain that he acknowledges in this uh, chapter, uh, although he also acknowledges that there's real hope in that pain. And Paul doesn't mean that we should thank God for the horrible thing itself, as if God was the one who sent it to us. And he wasn't necessarily. There is still real evil in this world. And our suffering may come through people who are acting contrary to God's will. And we don't have to thank God that they did that. But as the experience of that suffering reaches us, wherever it comes from, our Heavenly Father is able to transform it into a force for good in our own lives in answer to the prayers of his Holy Spirit. God has that sovereign power in all circumstances. So just as Joseph said to his brothers at the end of the book of Genesis, what you intended for harm, the Lord intended for good. And we do always thank God for that good that he brings to us, even when it comes through the vehicle of suffering. Now, there are several places where the New Testament analyzes the kinds of good that only suffering can produce in us, like that it grows endurance and character and hope. In fact, suffering probably has more power than any other tool in God's hand to conform us to the image of Jesus, as Paul says in verse 29. So we do rejoice in the certain hope that this process once begun has a goal it has an end point it will be brought to completion and God will finish what he has started. Paul rejoices in verse 30 that those whom God predestined he also called and those whom he also called those whom he called he also justified and those whom he justified he also glorified. So the process once begun, is brought to completion. none are abandoned along the way, or given up as lost causes. Hallelujah. Rejoice in that Saints, even as you suffer now because it means that you are on the road to glory. James chapter 1 verse 12 says, "Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life which God has promised to those who love him. So first, our suffering matters in the world. Second, it matters in our own lives. And now third, we will be personally victorious over our suffering. Sorrow, grief, and death laugh at us now, don't they? They laugh at us, they jeer at us, they gloat that they can take away from us anything and everything that we love, and that they will claim us too in the end. Friends, that is not the truth. We will not die while sorrow yet lives. Instead, we will watch sorrow die while we yet live. And this will be our victory. So Paul is crowing at the end of chapter eight as he brings his thoughts on suffering to their glorious conclusion. He sings, No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Hallelujah. With Jesus, we are unbeatable. His love wins. So suffering gets us out of the stands and into the game. We go from watching our quarterback win the Super Bowl on our behalf to getting on the field with him. So that the crown of glory that we receive at the end of the game, which was won for us by Jesus on the cross, is also very properly ours. We become heirs with Christ because we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. So through this transformation of suffering, Even suffering becomes good news. But none of it takes away the very real pain and tears now. There are still tears now. But although we grieve, we do not grieve as those who have no hope. And our hope is that our present suffering is securing our future glory. There are roses being grown in the very ashes of our pain. And suffering is not a setback to our progress. It is the very mechanism that propels us forward. So this morning, I'd like to challenge you all, Saints, not to hide your pain from each other. Sometimes it's tempting to do that. Sometimes it's tempting to show up at church all polished up and put together, make up, big smile. Oh, we're doing so well. Great week at work, new contracts. It's going to be an excellent year. Kids are in the honors club and so on and so on. Um, And when I see somebody in that state, I I kind of tend to to feel, gosh, how boring. Um, Nothing is happening here. Nothing of any eternal significance is going on. But show me somebody who's coming to church weeping, who spends the service on their knees, who drags the songs of praise out of a limping soul. And I say, this is where God is. This is the cave of shadows where eternal diamonds are being formed. So please don't feel that you have to bring some fake Facebook profile version of yourself to church. And if life has beaten you down and you can't master the energy to polish yourself up, that you should just stay home. (laughs) I just think that's rubbish. Please bring your real self here to this family. Bring your tears here. They're precious to God and to us. And I say this because I've actually noticed that many people in this community, maybe even Most of us, after we've been hit by tragedy, will stay away from Sunday service for a week or two, or maybe even a month or two, and we won't see you. Most of you hide a little bit. Coming here feels harder. And actually, you have more to bring into our midst on those Sundays when you're grieving than on any other day. Because your faith that stands up in the midst of wartime and refuses to give up hope and faith encourages us way more than it would in times of peace. And the offering you might bring to God in those seasons is much more valuable than it is at any other time. So when suffering comes, please don't hide it from us. Please trust this family to weep with those who weep and to love you where you are. And I say this, especially now on the eve of Lent, because next week, Fumi's coming. Fumio Jatai, our dear friend uh, and minister from the Baptist tradition is coming to preach for us. He's actually gonna lead most of our Lenten series on the book of Lamentations. Um, So we're gonna pause here in our Roman series, leave Paul on his chapter eight mountaintop, and we're gonna take up the words of lament from the book of Lamentations next week. Um, And there are two different ways of talking about suffering. Romans eight is one way to talk about suffering, a very important way Um, that shows us the victory that we have through our suffering. But there's another very biblical way to talk about suffering, a very important way too, and that is through the language of lament. And Fumi, um, especially as he's lived through 2020, has discovered this language to be immensely powerful and important, and he really wants to share his discoveries with our church. and lead us in new and biblical ways of expressing grief. And he's warned me that there might be tears from the pulpit and I told him they were most welcome and there might be tears in the pews too. And those are also very welcome.